You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. This is episode 134. And Fran, I don't have much else to say uh, because I know this is just going to be a really, really fun episode. It is. And actually, we just had such a great conversation that we didn't record that I I hope we revisit all of that in the podcast too. And it just – I feel like everything we've been doing has been leading up to this conversation because all the questions and all the conversations we've been having – all kind of revolve around this topic, and we've touched on it, but never know enough, so we brought it brought in someone that yeah. does. Yeah, So, and today's guest was actually requested yes. uh, by a listener of ours, Skip Burns, yes. who's actually been on a couple, at least yeah. one of our episodes. Twice. Um, so, Skip, thank you for, <laughs> for sending yeah, such a great you. suggestion. And with that, I want to introduce uh, Dr. Peter Groffman. Actually, I said I was going to introduce you, but I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, uh, Peter, because you know yourself a lot better than I do. Yeah, so hi, I'm Peter Groffman. I am a professor at the City University of New York, um, and I'm a, also a senior research fellow at a place called the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. That's in Millbrook, New York. The City University is is in uh, is in is in New York City. I teach at Brooklyn College in New York City, and uh, but my main base at, at the City University of New York is at something called the Advanced Science Research Center, which is uh, located in Manhattan, in New York. So we we kind of touched on it before we started recording. Just before we start talking, I thought it'd be good to at least cover what some of your research has been over the years. Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of research on urban ecology, which which is a and so I have a PhD in ecology. Just a little bit of my academic background: I have a bachelor's degree in environmental science, and I have a PhD in ecology which I got uh, some number of decades ago. Uh, and when that was the case, you know, there, wasn't, there weren't a lot of people studying urban ecosystems. Ecologists were very much focused on natural ecosystems, forests and wetlands and tropical, you know, and, and, and prairies. And, but over since, since the, the late 80s and, and in the 90s, um, there's been this explosion of interest in studying the places where people live. And, and I think that that change was, was driven a lot by the fact that people like me had PhDs, and I I grew I grew up in New Jersey, as I was saying earlier. I'm an Exit 117 man, um, and and I grew up in suburban areas, and and I think people do have some interest in studying the, the areas where they lived. Um, and also, since since you're based in New Jersey, Rutgers was one of the real uh, mm-hmm. center center places where where this work in urban ecology emerged. Uh, and and so so we have been spending um, moving away from studying just what we call reference ecosystems, natural forests or natural wetlands or natural grasslands, towards studying um, more of the urban and suburban spaces. And the vast majority of the urban and suburban spaces that we study are people's yards. And, um, and so they're, they're just super important ecologically because they, they cover a large area. They have a really big impact on the environment, um, both positive and negative. Uh, and so they're, so they're important to study. And, and the other reason that they're really important to study is it's because it's it's we can it's really a good place for us to sort out the interactions between people and nature. 
So when, once we start to study urban ecosystems, and one of the reasons that we were slow to do it is because you can't ignore people. People are, are an essential component of ecosystems, and people are just hard to study. You know, I'm, I'm equipped to study, you know, plants and soils and microorganisms. I'm not a social scientist to study. But so once we were in working in residential areas, um, we were, you know, we had to uh, form academic relationships with social scientists to really study what do people, what do people know? What do they perceive? What do they value? How do their perceptions and values influence their actions and what they do? And this is super important for understanding these residential ecosystems. But it's it's kind of important for everything in environmental science, which 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 all involves human perceptions, values, and actions. And so, urban ecology has been 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 enormously entertaining for me and, and interesting for me to study, just because it's it's an important area of land. It's a new topic, you know. It's a novel topic, and it gets at the heart of of really fundamental questions in environmental science about what are what, what why do people do what they do. You know, one of the the biggest things that Tom and I get asked is really advice. Tom and I do a talk on how to grow the circle bigger, and we always talk to our listeners about it's great if if all of us planted a hundred native plants in our yard, but it's really better if everyone planted ten native plants in their yard. Um, and the biggest question we always get is, well, how do we talk to people to to grow that circle business or bigger? Mm-hmm. And we're always like, well, you kind of have to understand why they're doing what they're doing yeah. which is we don't know that answer we yeah. have assumptions that we think you know maybe it's just force of habit maybe it's what you learn to do maybe it's just what your neighbors do we don't know yeah. and you definitely can't uh start off by calling them an idiot or something more <laughs> vulgar than that because <laughs> that's not gonna progress the oh at least that's been our advice you might have a, a different idea um well, so we've spent a lot of time addressing this question, and you are 100% right that this is the key question. Um, scientists are always trying to get people to do stuff, right? And, and, and this is true. Like, so, so you know, we came into a lot of this, the work with residential areas was with, was with water quality and air quality. We're trying to get people not to use fertilizer, and we're trying to get people not to use pesticides. And, um, and one thing we have learned um, – is you can't just fuss at people. You know, you just, you know, you ought to. Scientists are great at, at, at preaching, or they, they, you know, there's a jargon term for it, the, the deficit model. That people are doing things because they don't know. And if we'll just fill that knowledge deficit, then magically their behavior will change. And, and it's, just, it's, just not, it's just not true. And so, and so we, we, we kind of, we're really good at lecturing or hectoring or telling people what to do, and it just doesn't work. And it, and, and it doesn't work in environmental science. You know, it doesn't work in nutrition, right? We tell people we tell people not to smoke. We tell people to eat better. We tell people to exercise more. And it's, it's almost like like talking to teenage kids. You know, they're like, "Do you hear a noise like a scratching noise on the wall?" You know, and they're not they're just not listening. So there's been a I would say a revolution in in the idea of science science communication to move from from this kind of one way flow of information to a process of engagement. And so there's this question of you really need to spend some time listening to people, and you and you say, well, what are you doing? Um, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, what are you doing? And so, so we have spent a lot of time listening, and so we we've done um, a lot of surveys. We've done we've done uh, you know telephone surveys, which are kind of short surveys. We have also done where we we spend an hour walking around people's yards with people. So we spend an hour long interview. We record those interviews and we do this detailed 
text analysis and extract themes from those interviews. Um, we have done this in uh, six cities across the U.S. So one of my main research areas has been this comparison of six cities in the U.S., Boston, Baltimore, Miami, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Phoenix, and Los Angeles. So these are six really different cities. And in all those cities, you know, we called up about 1,800 people in each of those cities and asked them 30 questions about what they do in their yard, what their perceptions are. And then for about 20 people in each of those cities, we spent an hour with them. Uh, and so we really spent a lot of time trying to figure out what are people doing and why are they doing it? And, and that underlies everything. So if we would like people to use less fertilizer, if we would like people to plant native plants, um, that's the kind of knowledge base that we need. And we've learned a lot of things. You know, I was just thinking as we were as you were discussing that things like herbicides and pesticide and synthetic fertilizer, they're not that old. Like as far as the history of man, we're not talking thousands of years. We're talking this is something newer, but it's become so big of a part of what everyone – like the average person I think thinks of that they need to do to keep things looking nice. Like what did you find? Like how important – like are these things in reality and what was people's perception of that? So the first thing we found out was that people are not fertilizing nearly as much as we thought they were. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we went into this with an assumption that everyone was fertilizing and everyone was fertilizing at a high rate. And what we've seen is that only 50% of people fertilize. And we've seen this in multiple surveys in multiple cities and other groups have found the same thing. And it was a big surprise. Um, because we expect, and 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 so so the the general sense is that in 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 any given neighborhood or any you know as, as a whole, about fifty percent of people fertilize their yards. Much lower percent use pesticides. Mm-hmm. And of the people that do fertilize, um, most people do it themselves. They 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 go to this go to the store. They buy a bag of fertilizer. They put it out on their yard. Um, and if they have a big bag of fertilizer in a small yard, they fertilize at a very high rate. If they have a small bag of fertilizer in a large yard, they're fertilizing <laughs> at a very low rate. So there's a lot of variation in what people are doing. Okay. And then only about 20% uh, of people are are actually having a, a lawn care company come and fertilize. And those people, they fertilize they fertilize at a high rate. Uh, they do it very carefully. Right? They, they split it up into six applications or so. So the first thing we found out was that, was that there was um, less less fertilizer than than, than we thought. And uh, and 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 we. It led us to dis- to discover, you know, what one of the big motivations is um, is 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 kind of laziness, right? So, like a lot of people, you know, like we choose interviews with people, and and we we're like, do you fertilize? And they're like, well, you know, when I first moved in, we fertilized. Now I've kind of slacked up, and I'm going to get back to it. No, like, no, 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 it's fine. Whatever you want to do is fine with us. Um, and so, so, so that that surprised us a little bit that there was less fertilizer used than we thought, and and, and, and in a good way. Because the other thing is, is um, we also ask people, are they satisfied with their yard? Are they satisfied with the natural environment in their neighborhood, which includes their yard, their neighbor's yards, and and and, and the, the parks and stuff? And levels of satisfaction with the natural environment in their neighborhood is quite high across the country, and 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 didn't vary much between people that fertilize and don't fertilize. It was it was really about the same. Okay, and so. So, so that that was that, it, it was it was quite interesting to us in that people that the, the, there's not as much fertilizer being applied as we thought, mm-hmm. and um, and so that it led us into this other discussion of okay, well, what is what are the motivations driving people? Like, what, what do people really want? You know, what are they hoping to achieve in their yards? And 
And so that's where we got um, a lot of information from these detailed interviews. So, so we, 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 in each of our cities, we had between, I think, between 12 and 20 yards where we did very detailed studies, where we, we identified every single plant in the yard, we did detailed soil sampling, and we spent an hour with people wandering around their yard. What have you done here? What were you hoping to achieve? What are you thinking of doing in the future? And this was just amazingly interesting because the, the, the thing that you, that, you, that you realize, and I guess this is not a surprise to you all who, who work with plants for a living, but people's yards are really important to them. I mean, so you wander around people's yards and they say, oh yeah, here's this lilac bush and, and, and our kids bought us, for this, bought us this for our 25th anniversary. You know, it's like a sacred plant to people. Or, you know, I won a prize over here and, and, and we planted this to, you know, to commemorate that. And so, so you realize that people's yards are really important to them and if we would like to change what they do in their yards, whether it's using less fertilizer or using less water or, or, or using native plants, we're going to have to really recognize about what's, you know, what's important to people and, and, and what, what they do. And, and, and we have to take account of that because we'll never be able to get them to do something different if we don't understand that. So we, there, was a, there was a very nice – and so one of our social scientists, they, they, they did this analysis where they, they – interview, you know, they analyzed these hundreds of hours of, of interviews and pulled out some themes. And they said, what are the main things that are driving people's behavior in the yards? And, and does it vary across the country, right? They had some ideas that, that the, you know, we have, you know, in our, in our six cities, we have some hot, dry cities, and we have some cold cities, and we have some hot, wet cities. And, and there was this idea that maybe there would be more interest in climate modification or water use in different in different parts of the country uh the big thing that emerged so what what why do people do what they do what, what are they what are people getting out of the yards the number one thing was beauty right and pe- you know and people like like pretty plants and and it's, it's not a huge surprise there but but people definitely um so there was beauty and then the other was 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 low maintenance and what i like to call kind of laziness you know, and it's like, it's like, I have a yard, I haven't got a lot of time, I don't want to spend a lot of money on it, but I want it to look nice. And, um, and so those were the, the overwhelming big drivers. People want it to look nice, and, and they need some efficiency of, of, their, of their time use. And the other thing that emerged, and you brought this up, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop a minute. Let's, let's <laughs> no, 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 this is great. Is, is the idea of social cohesion, right? So people are very much affected by, by what's, around them in their neighborhood and a desire to maintain harmonious relationships with their neighbors. So like I live in a neighborhood, I like my neighbors. Um, if my yard looks sloppy uh, or messy or in some way, my neighbors are going to be unhappy. I don't want my neighbors to be unhappy. I'm also lazy and cheap. And so I don't <laughs> want to spend a lot of time or money on the yard and I don't want to piss off my neighbors. And so I do the minimum amount I need to do to avoid pissing off my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually do a little more than that because I also like pretty stuff and I, and I do things. And, and, um, but I think that's what a lot of people are doing. So if we think about the group of homeowners around the country, probably the biggest group are what we call these passive lawns. They don't fertilize. They don't use pesticides. They don't use very much water. But, they, but, they, but they're, they're, they're maintaining their yard um, to... Uh, to, to maintain social cohesion, to, to, mm-hmm. to be to happy with themselves and be happy with their neighbors. And that's like a really important, to me, that was an, that's an important finding because most people are, are pretty passive and, um, 
and their their goals are not that lofty. And I bet you we can get those people to 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 do some other things. You know, yeah. I, it's I I have a couple comments on that, but I, I'm trying to you know for us like in my neighborhood right now, we don't pick up. We're the only person that right now that hasn't raked leaves in the backyard. We do the front yard to kind of appease everyone, but I, I did it very early, and then the second fall is still there, and it's very noticeable when you come down our street. But no one said anything because everything else looks nice. Like right now, it's decorated for the holidays. The, the grass isn't too long, although we, we stopped mowing probably a while ago, but we did have a drought also. So, um, you know, we're kind of we, – we did just enough to not upset anyone, <laughs> but I was also wondering – when you were talking about why people just, be, just before just before you go on yeah. the front yard and back thing has been a big focus of our research in particular one of okay. our mm-hmm. uh, a phd student dexter Locke, was getting his phd and he was really interested in the difference between what people do in the front yards and the backyards and he uh formulated this landscape mullet hypothesis i don't know if you're familiar with a mullet <laughs> it's a haircut style right and it's this is in the front part of the back and um and he's got scientific papers with that in the title but it it um it really resonates with a lot of people because you are you 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 are a, a landscape mullet guy, right? Yeah. You, yeah. You're maintaining the front legitimately to keep your neighbors happy, and then in the back, you know, you're 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 leaving the leaves there. And so, so I just had to interact there because the difference between front yards and backyards is people do really different things in the front yards and the back. And we're changing that. Like the front garden is really manicured, but. This year we incorporated natives and we're letting them go a little bit more. So it's not a hundred percent. It's just like a gradual build up to that. Um, but I was going to say, like uh, our house is kind of the reverse mullet, where it's a little <laughs> bit wild and crazier in the front, and then the backyard I have to keep more manicured for my wife. So, <laughs> but I so, would. And so, so your wife uses the backyard, right? And she's yeah. like, "This is what I would like to see there." Yeah, exactly. And, and again, yeah. it's that super important realization because. It's important to her what you're doing in the backyard, and so you get out there and you mow it. You know, the funny thing is when people come and see our backyard because the front is more manicured, they're actually surprised in a good way. They're like, oh, wow, this is pretty wild. Like this looks nice. You know, we and, – and I know there's different perceptions to that. They're just – you know, because it can be done in a nice way without it looking unkempt. It's not like we just let it go. It's just a different different look. And it's not what most people are accustomed to seeing. So when they see it, we just had gathering for Thanksgiving and people were coming in the backyard going, oh, wow, this is this is pretty cool. So and it hopefully that helps get gets the wheels turning, too. Uh, So there's a lot of that. And I mean, there's a bunch of social science about this, that if you can get a couple of early adopters mm -hmm. to, to do something and then people people say well, that looks nice. I mean, you, you, you know, that's going on in neighborhoods now with, with solar panels. The first person with solar panel on the roof, everyone else says, oh, that looks pretty cool. And, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then that influences other people mm-hmm. to do it. And I think it's very much true with um, – and there's been a bunch of very good science on this about getting people to uh, adopt less mowing or to mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, get rid of the grass altogether. And so if you can get, you can get one person to do it on the street and, and then other people can say, okay, that, that looks good. For me, it's a big deal. Yeah, two of the other things I was wondering if you found as an influence for that in any of the research was, you know, we just talked about an article where a gentleman in Florida found a way to do a native lawn. Now it was in an area of the country that you could get away. There were native plants that they could get away with and keep it like eight to ten inches and change the look, but have it still fit in and still work around homeowners associations, which I know is another factor. 
The, yeah. the the other issue I was wondering about was marketing. I, in the in the mid '90s, earlier in my career, I worked for one of these larger lawn companies. At the time, they were one of the top five landscape companies in the country. And as a promotional um, gimmick, one of the CEOs cemented his lawn at his mansion and turfed it. And then they were showing that with just with chemicals, you could still have a nice looking lawn to. Regardless of what you had underneath of that lawn, it could be cement, it could be horrible soils, and it was just like just six treatments a year, and you can have this. Like, and I was wondering how much of it was marketing effect. Like, we always get the we talk about the mailers to control mosquitoes and all that. Like, how much of it is just marketing that people see it and believe it? Yeah. So, so let's talk about the the influencing. And so, and so I'm ta- I'll talk about both those things. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's been there's been a bunch of research about. Um, about getting people to adopt uh, diff- different different approaches, right? Because there's always been a bunch of people who are really interested in getting rid of the grass and planting something else in the yard, and um, and and so so we have a our current project, which is which is just ending, is called Alternative Futures for the American Residential Macro System. This is work funded by the National Science Foundation, again in six cities, and so we we had spent the you know, five to 10 years or so characterizing what we call ecological homogenization across the country, which is driven by the, the observation that like, why do these neighborhoods in Phoenix look the same as the neighborhoods in Baltimore? I mean, you could be sitting there mm-hmm. in Phoenix and there's grass and shrubs and trees, and it, it looks pretty, pretty similar to the, to the yards in Baltimore. And what's, what's really funny is, is, well, it's not funny, but like, why did people move to Phoenix originally? People moved to Phoenix in the fifties for health reasons, if they had allergies or asthma, they moved to the desert and there was no allergies or asthma. But people moved to Phoenix and what the first thing they did was they planted all the grasses and shrubs and trees that they had to east and now you can have the same pollen counts in Phoenix that you have in, in, uh, in New Jersey. And use a lot more water. <laughs> you need a lot more water. But, and so, and so, and so we, we, we spent this idea that characterizing this ecological homogenization that indeed the suburbs of Atlanta – but very similar to the suburbs of Chicago and, and Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles, and there's this ecological homogenization. So then our second question was, okay, is it always going to look that way, right? So in 50 years, is this, this American residential macro system, we call it, is it going to look the same as it does now? And, and we said, well, there are some factors driving change, and there are some factors driving stability in that system. And so what are the factors driving change? Well... They're trying to use less water in the West. That's a big driver. I would say the three big drivers of change in the West are water, water, and water. Mm-hmm. In the East, we have big concerns about runoff, right? So in the East, where you know, in, in counties in New Jersey, there are incentives to plant rain gardens to capture mm-hmm. runoff, and 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 so there's there's that. There's a genuine interest, and you'll be glad to hear this. There's a genuine interest in wildlife-friendly, native plant-based gardening, right? So in each of our six cities. We have, were able to locate a, lo- a large number of National Wildlife Federation certified yards, um, and we okay. contacted the National Wildlife Federation, and they they were they were just marvelous collaborators. And they said, "Yeah, in each of these six cities, we've got hundreds of people who have uh, adopted our program. We go we go and bless them, you know, and we give them a certification. That and so so there's a real interest in so- doing something different, um, and uh, and it means getting rid of the grass and you plant these 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 wildlife yards." Um, and so our current studies are in each of our cities, we have, we have experimental treatment yards, right? So in each of our cities, we have 
We have five of these Wildlife Federation certified yards. We have five yards with some type of water treatment, either xeriscaping in the west or a rain garden in the east. We have passive lawns where they get no fertilizer or, or pesticide. And then we have high, high input yards, which are usually maintained by a lawn service that get a lot of fertilizer in the lawn. And so, so, so we have two parts to our study, right? So one is a social science analysis of what are the factors driving change and what are the factors driving stability. Then we have the ecological analysis of, okay, if you try these different yard types, what ecological benefits do you get? Both these analyses are, are super interesting to us because, yes, there are these factors driving change. There's the, the concern about water use. There's concern about water pollution. There's genuine interest in native plant biodiversity. Those are factors driving change. But the, the other factors drive, there's other factors driving stability, which include political economy, so marketing. Right? So there's just a lot of marketing, and people are affected by marketing. I've got plants to sell. I've got fertilizers to sell. I'm going to sell them, and people are going to listen to me and, and buy them. There's definitely marketing. Um, there's, there's, there's also laws. right? So we spent a lot of time doing analysis of uh, municipal rules and regulations regarding people's yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and there, there, there are a lot of them. Um, almost every municipality has some yard about lawn height and lawn neatness and, and um, noxious plants. And so there are rules uh, that, 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 that affect people. And then, as you mentioned, homeowner associations are, are, not, are, are a real specific manifestation of those rules um, that can be, you know, the, the thing with, uh, there are lots of rules. Uh, how are the rules enforced? Right, so it, and if you have a homeowner association, they're more likely to be enforced than, than if they're just if they're just rules. The other thing that that the other driver that's inhibiting change is is property values, right? So you buy a house, right? So as soon as you buy a house, you need to begin to think, how am I ever going to sell this stuff? And so you you wonder, like, if I have some type of non-traditional yard, is that going to make it harder to sell the house? And so real estate. We all, anyone who owns a house, we all know real estate's a big driver of yeah. what people do. Um, and, and so, so that's, that's, that's a driver. And then the other big driver is, is this, this laziness or, or effort, right? So we, when we look at our wildlife yards across, across there, these are all native plants and they're wildlife friendly and they're certified by the National Wildlife Federation. And they are, they're just amazing, you know, and they, 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 they look beautiful. Um, and then we we've been doing sampling of like do they have effects on 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 insects and pollinators and birds? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do, as you would expect. Um, but the other thing when you look at them, you go, Ooh, that looks like a lot of work, right? You know, and if you don't yeah. weed them and you, you know and you don't pay attention to them, it's more work. So then you 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 run into the fact that okay, do I have time to do this? And then if you don't do the work, they get kind of weedy. And I think we all know what these look like, right? So uh, you know, poorly maintained. That has got a button, you know, looks, and then, then, then your neighbors are unhappy. And, and so that's another factor. I guess I, I, I guess I'm overcome with this, this sense of laziness. <laughs> it means a lot to me. You know? well, and, and that's what we always, well, one of our biggest things of advice is start small, like work within an area mm-hmm. that you can keep up with and then increase from there. Yeah, but, I think that's a very sagely piece of advice. So we, we, we've kind of discussed some of the drivers of why people think the way they do. I'd like to kind of maybe go into a little bit of how this has affected our ecosystems and our soils and our climate. And then maybe after that, we could follow up with some solutions or advice that we can give to our listeners to, to work through some of these drivers. So given the use of 
of chemicals and fertilizers. How has that impacted our open spaces, our climate, our soils? There, there has to be a noticeable impact, especially over the last 50 years, I would imagine. Yeah. So our big, I mean, that was the big, the big driver that got us into this. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a biogeochemist. So I study fluxes of water and carbon and nitrogen and nutrients. So I'm much, I'm not a, I'm not a biodiversity person. Yeah. So, so my entry into this was definitely concerns about water quality and, and air quality. And I've done work in agricultural systems and in urban systems and in yards. And so the concerns, what are the effects on, on water and air and on soil uh, was a was a big concern, and and indeed, um, the if you if you use a lot of fertilizer, it runs off. Uh, it can, it can it can run off the, the yard and then and then cause water pollution. So and and it also a lot depends on how you apply the fertilizer, right? So if you think about how do you apply fertilizer, how much of it gets on the grass, and how much of it gets on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. um, and so so there's there's that concern of, of just uh, imperfect application processes. And then a lot of our yards, some of our yards really absorb water quite nicely and others don't, right? And so the ones you talked about having bad soil underneath, the, the real effect of the bad soil is that the is that that you get runoff. And so if I apply fertilizer in, you know, in the spring and then I get a big thunderstorm, I can get a, a, a pulse of, of nutrients coming off the lawn, going into the street, going into the stream, goes into the lake, goes into the estuary and causes water pollution problems. Um, and the, um, and it's the, and it's the same with, with the air, right? So if we, especially if we apply nitrogen fertilizers, uh, we can get emissions of nitrous oxide, which is, which is laughing gas, but it's no laughing matter. Um, in terms of it's a very potent greenhouse gas also contributes to the destruction of the ozone layer. So, so, and, and, and also there's also concerns about, about pesticides, right? So again, if we apply pesticides and we apply them in an imperfect way, then there's opportunities for exposure to 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 you know to people and pets. There's opportunities for movement into adjacent water bodies, and so so there's there's not there's not there's no um, there's no real surprises there that we know that that there are inherent environmental risks associated with the use of fertilizers and and with pesticides. Um, the the um, and and many. Many municipalities have passed fertilizer bans. In particular areas where there's lakes, they're very concerned about phosphorus fertilizers. Phosphorus, and so many, many places have phosphorus fertilizer bans. They say you can apply a nitrogen fertilizer, but as long as there's no phosphorus in it, this is going to go into the lake and make the lake turn green. Um, And there are many places now that are also considering nitrogen fertilizer bans because because they're, they're like, well, do you really have to apply fertilizers to the yard? You know, and, and if you have data that suggests that people are are happy with their yards without the fertilizer use, so then you can pass a fertilizer ban or fertilizer restrictions. And we've been doing quite a bit of, of social science research to ask people, okay, would you be amenable to fertilizer restrictions? Would you be amenable to fertilizer bans? And, uh, and this is particularly uh, relevant in the Chesapeake Bay where they're really trying to reduce nitrogen flow into the Chesapeake Bay. And, and so, but they're trying to avoid pushback, right? So, you know, in, in certain areas, if you push too hard on the environmental regulations, then people push back and then you end up kind of losing ground. We could talk about that later. But, well, I would, but like, if, if, if fertilizer were to go away today, except for like natural, like anything chemical, chemical or non-organic, 
how would that change everything? Like, is it even really necessary? Like, is there anything that says we need to have this? Right. So, so just also just one thing to specify. Yeah. So, so we the natural fertilizers or organic yeah. fertilizers can cause just as yeah. much environmental okay. damage. Right. Than, right? It's, it's, okay. It's, it's the amount, yeah. right? So, and, and, you know, if I put a whole bunch of chicken manure on my yard, mm-hmm. not only is it going to stink to high heaven, but it's also going to run off just like the regular fertilizer yeah. does. And so, okay. so it's the amount of nutrients. And the question is, can our, ha, ha, can our yards do, do, do well with either less nutrients or no fertilizers? And, and I think our, they do just fine, right? So we have, there's, there's, again, the biggest group of homeowners that, at least in our studies and in other studies, the biggest group of homeowners are not fertilizers like 40%, 50%, they're not applying any fertilizer. And they're pretty much just as, as happy with their yards as, as, every, as, as everyone else is. Um, I, I do have Some a... people would argue, and, and, okay. and, and, I, and I will, I will in fairness, there's two other, there's two other um, things to consider. Is some people really want a very green monoculture yard, right? If they, and they, they really, you know, they're, they're, that's, you know, that's the 20% of people that are using a, a lawn mm-hmm. care service. They're either... They're either really lazy, they're lazy and wealthy, so they can hire someone to do it, <laughs> or they really have specific desires for a very green, very specific look type type of type of yard. And the other thing, which is which is even more sympathetic, is is there's there's a lot of turf science research that show that if you use some fertilizer in your yard, you're going to have healthier plants, and the healthier plants are going to absorb water better. There's going to be less erosion, and and so so there's this there is an idea that that maintaining healthy turf has environmental benefits and that some fertilizer can play a role in that. That's, but you can have healthy turf without fertilizer. So we don't need fertilizers. To, we don't okay. not desperately need fertilizers um, on our, on lawns. Um, yeah. I would, I, at least I, I would agree with that. I guess one, one question just to add to that, say you had someone that were to fertilize and, and spray their, their lawn for 10 years. For a decade, they consistently do it. How long does it take to undo that for the damage that it's done to the ecosystem and the soil? Yeah, so, 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 I didn't get to talk about this, but like, okay, so fertilizer, what does, what effect does it have on the soil itself? And there's, there's been research on this for for a hundred years because they started using fertilizers about a hundred years ago, okay. and um, mostly in agricultural soils, and so. So the, the fertilizers definitely acidify the soil, so the soil becomes more acidic, um, and, and people then counteract that by adding lime to it. But the, the, real, the real kind of persistent effect is phosphorus, right? So when we use phosphorus fertilizers, the phosphorus, the phosphorus fertilizer, some of it goes into the plant, but most of it just stays in the soil. And so over time, our soils become richer and richer and richer and richer and richer in phosphorus, and that creates a legacy effect, right? Because then that phosphorus kind of oozes out of the soil for years later, and and becomes a water pollution problem for a long, mm-hmm. for a long time. So the most persistent effect of the fertilizers is definitely this this eutrophication or this buildup of nutrients, in particular phosphorus. And and we see that in agricultural soils. We see that in lakes that have been getting a lot of phosphorus. So a bunch of the phosphorus accumulates in the sediment, and you're stuck with it. You know, so it's like it's like how do I how am I going to get this phosphorus out of the soil? How am I going to get this phosphorus out of the lake? I'm either going to have to wait for it to work its way through the system, which is going to take decades, or I have to dredge it or remove the soil, which is very expensive and kind of cumbersome. So to me, um, the nitrogen doesn't 
really precipitate. I mean, our, our, this nitrogen accumulates in the soils, and, mm-hmm. and, and fertilized soils have more nitrogen in them than unfertilized soils. The, re- the real problem here is the phosphorus is accumulating. So even if you were to take a lawn that had been treated for 10 years religiously and replace it tomorrow with a native meadow, you're not necessarily undoing that in 10 years. No, yeah. and, and 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 so there's there, this is this is a it's actually a huge problem in in restoration ecology. And again, there's been a tremendous amount of research on this in New Jersey, right? So if you you look at a bunch of forests that have been overcome by uh, invasive plants like Japanese barberry yeah. or honeysuckles. So lots of lots of people would like to remove those plants and restore like the native shrubs like vaccinium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so. Great. We'll go in there and we we remove the barberry and we plant some vaccinium, but the vaccinium doesn't grow, right? The barberry comes back, and and a lot of it is because the soil has been altered, mm-hmm. and it's been altered by partially this eutrophication, by partially the community of microorganisms associated with the plants has changed, partially the physical structure of the soil has changed. Sometimes the native the invasive plants facilitate invasion by earthworms, and so the earthworms have changed the soil, mm-hmm. and so. Changing the soil um, has, and, and yes, you know, there's the chemical effects, but then there's the, the physical and biological effects. Changing the soil is very hard to reverse. So your question about how long does it take to reverse uh, is, is, is really a good one because we would like to say, okay, we're going to stop doing what we were doing, and, and then we're going to go back to what we had before. That's, that's pretty hard to do. Oh, yeah. So – and and if I remember correctly, barberry changes the pH of the soil too. So by the invasives coming in, that's also altering the soil. If I remember barberry correctly, barberry is really something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so with what we talked about is is trying to rewild agricultural land worse than trying to fix urban lawns. Because, Ooh, that's of a chemi- hard, that's a hard question. because of chemical use. Friend, that might be the so best can, question can, you've ever asked. <laughs> Thank you. I, I can tell you a story about this. So, so there's an, there was an area in the Everglades National Park uh, that was called the Hole in the Donut. Okay. And, uh, and it was, it was, the, it was, a, it was a, a circular area in the middle of the park that was still in agriculture. Because agriculture in South Florida is pretty pro- – you, know, you can grow things there. Um, and uh, so the park finally bought the Hole in the Donut. They, 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 they acquired this land, they took it out of agriculture, and they said, now this is going to rewild into the natural okay. everybody's, and it did not. So it rewilded into um, Brazilian pepper, which is a very aggressive, invasive shrub, which, which grew like crazy. And like you could see aerial photos where there were Everglades, and you could see the old crop field border. Then that's where there was a real sharp line for this, 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 this invasive shrub. And the park service was very unhappy with this, and so they they cut the shrub, they burned the shrub, they herbicided the shrub, they drag lined to get rid of the shrub, and everything they did just made the shrub grow more. They could not get rid of this Brazilian pepper until they said, well, maybe we just have to scrape off the soil. Right? Mm-hmm. We're going to scrape the soil down to the limestone bedrock because it's been so altered by agriculture, yeah. and whether it's the new, whether it's you know, and again, it's chemical, physical, and biological alteration of the soil. And so, and so, in the in, and and I was on an advisory committee with a professor from from Rutgers and some other people, and they were like, "This seems like a kind of a crazy idea where we're going to scrape away." And it was a pretty big area; it was okay. hundreds of acres. We're just going to scrape away all the topsoil, put it in dump trucks, and cart it away, and then hope the Everglades come back. And it worked. 
right? But it, you know, and it, it, it was a, it's you know it's a very interesting ecological restoration story. But it, it gets very much at your question about if you alter the soil, it's it's hard to rewild. But you know, you know, in yards, we're not necessarily trying to rewild, right? Yeah, I'm no, like, like that, that, and I think that's an advantage, right? And so, like, if we look at our National Wildlife Federation certified yards, it doesn't have to be native. It just has to be. It, it doesn't have to replace the native ecosystem that was there before yeah. the suburbs were. I just want native plants that are, that support a bunch of biodiversity. And to me, that's a little bit easier because you all can tell me what about a yard that's been fertilized for a long time. What native plants are going to grow in there? Yeah. And it's it's hard too because that I guess like I know my last house there was no native soil around that house it was all fill. So trying to match it, you know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, what kind of soil do you have?" and look at your surroundings, but that's not necessarily what's going to do best because that's not the natural soil. And some things just didn't some things that should have thrived in that condition didn't. And I I wonder how much of that our listeners have an issue with without even realizing it that maybe it's what you have is not what's supposed to be there. Right. We spent a lot of time digging, digging and digging in people's yards and, and depending on the, on the nature of the suburbs and when they were built, many of them have relatively intact soil profiles, but in other areas are really quite a bit of fill. That's why you have a good nursery name. You know, the nursery, <laughs> nursery, the nursery say, look, here's the, here's the soil I've got. Uh, what's what's going to grow here, and and they usually have pretty good recommendations. So I'm yeah. spitballing here because we typically don't recommend this. How do you feel about soil amendments for someone planting, or do you have any input on that? If someone were to say, "Hey, I'm going to put in this bed," should I alter the soil or do anything different? Do you have any recommendations for that? Well, so so we always like to think that there are, there are three types of things that that are important for soil. There's organic matter and organic matter and organic. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and I think everybody, everybody knows that, that if we, if we, if we, if, if we, if, if we take care of our soils, if we don't treat our soils like dirt, um, then they're going to be good to us in return. And so we need soils that have good organic matter that aren't highly compacted, um, that aren't really over fertilized, over eutrophied, and, and they're going to do just fine. Um, there are a bunch of soil amendments um, and, and there's, it's a very active area of research because people are really trying to come up with improved fertilizers, like you talked about, using organic fertilizers, yeah. slow-release fertilizers. So people are trying to come up with improved fertilizers to um, to reduce their environmental impact, and I, I think there's been some success in that. It's not my area of research. Then there's also these other really interesting amendments where people are trying to make biological amendments. Right? Can we add certain species of bacteria and fungi to facilitate the ability of plants you know, to, to manipulate plant-soil interactions to achieve some specific ends. We, we, have, that, we have yeah. that conversation here with Michael Rizzi all, all the time, just, yeah. uh, right. you right. know, because the what's available through the trade isn't necessarily natural to yeah. here. It might be from another continent. And oh, yeah, I think it's all from other yeah. continents. I, I was just going through, and I saw a mushroom coming out of a pot one day, and I knew we added some mycorrhizae to different plants and i in the back of my mind i'm like well what's in this that is it actually helping is it not and um but the mushroom that i found I identified as something being native to south africa I'm like well how's that we don't have these intricate we always talk about yeah there's these intricate relationships with the microorganisms in the soil and then the the plants but i doubt there's any intricate relationship that's developed over millennia between 
a, a white oak and this mushroom from South Africa that probably never even saw each other before. Right. And, and so all the stuff with micro, mycorrhizae is a very state-of-the-art research question. This is, yeah. and, 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 and it's a state-of-the-art research questions in natural ecosystems and, and as they, they are changing. But then there are state-of-the-art research questions in, in, in managed systems. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why it's fun to talk with people in the, who, who actually work with, work with actual mm-hmm. yards is because people aren't going to buy stuff if it doesn't work. Yeah, and 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 so and so I can say you know oh this is complex and it might work and it might not work, but people who are actually using these products then feed back and say well this worked and this didn't work and mm-hmm. there's a to me there's a lot to be learned from kind of talking to people who are actually doing the work in different yeah. places. Yeah, I would like to make a proposal if I could. <laughs> I'm just looking at time and there's so much I want to cover <laughs> and I don't want to gloss over it. So I didn't know if you would be willing to. Come back on for a part two at some point that we could, you know, because I want to discuss climate change and how it affects snow cover and coldness of winter and how that affects everything. And I also want to talk about how we can talk to the average person about overcoming some of mm-hmm. these things, some advice, some solutions that we can move forward without glossing over it. Because yeah. I'm looking and I'm like, we have about 15 minutes left and there's no way. We can discuss that. Is that a possibility that well, we could sure. do? I'm glad to come. I mean, this is a lot of fun for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so a lot I'm of fun for us, too. Yeah. So, I'm glad to come back on So instead of starting that and then saying, let's stop, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about you and some of the questions that we want to ask, and we can kind of fill out those last 15. And when we do our part two, let's talk about the idea of climate change and how we can overcome some of this because mm-hmm. I feel like I don't want to start something and give – answers that we want to dive into and then divert away yeah because i i have a million more questions oh yeah because both those both those topics are super interesting right because climate change is playing out in these neighborhoods and there's a lot we can do uh, to to, in in response to that that's very important and and the other area we talked about can't remember but also was sounded interesting okay all right awesome so that's the plan we're gonna we're gonna do that so um we love talking to guests like you because we love how passionate you are about what you deal with how did this start for you what what made you decide at some point this was the career path or, or education yeah. path that you you wanted to take okay. so so uh, i i realized when i was in the third grade i, I either wanted to be a scientist or a fire truck um, <laughs> and i realized it just wasn't going to work out as a fire truck so i kind of lobbed onto the scientific thing and um and and but it is it is uh it is um I really kind of became interested in nature and becoming a scientist at a, at a surprisingly young age. And I grew up in, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. And like many people growing up in suburban New Jersey, there were woodlots and there were streams. And I spent a fair bit of time kind of roaming around the woodlots and the streams. Uh, and so I knew I was interested in, in environmental science. And so I went to college um, and I majored in environmental science, but I didn't really know what kind of environmental science I was interested in. And, 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 it, and at my university, there was there was um, environmental science degree was was a mixture of geology, hydrology, meteorology, and ecology, which is a good mix of the environmental yeah. sciences. So I had to take a core course in each one of those things. And I, I thought geology was interesting. I thought hydrology was interesting. Meteorology also really interesting. But I took an ecology class, and I said, "Oh, that's what I want to study. That is just super interesting to me." And in particular, there's two kinds of ecology, right? So there's the ecology 
which is the study of organisms and their interaction with the environment. We call that lizard squeezer ecology. You know, you can hold a lizard in your hand. What does it eat? Where does it live? Who eats it? And that's, you know, odd ecology or organismal ecology. And then there's ecosystem ecology, which is the study of the whole assemblage of, of, of living things and non-living things in an area that functions as a system to capture energy from the sun and cycle carbon and water and nutrients. And I'm an ecosystem ecologist. And when they talk about ecosystem ecology, I said, ooh, that's for me. Um, and the other thing that, that, that got me going in college was, was the in this ecology course, the instructor was giving some examples about agriculture. And, and, and I said, well, I really want to do ecosystem ecology of agricultural systems. So I then went to graduate school. And I, I was an undergrad at the University of Virginia. Okay. And I then went to get a PhD in ecology at the University of Georgia doing agricultural ecology stuff. And, and this, was, uh, this was in 1980, I enrolled in graduate school. And, um, and, so, and so since that time, I, I've just been incredibly lucky and had really a lot of fun to work in all different kinds of ecosystems. So, so in agricultural systems and in forest systems, I've worked in deserts, I've worked in prairies, I worked in um, a bunch of wetland work. And then starting in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this, um, this, this real increase in interest in working in urban systems. And, and I found that just irresistible because that's where I started. I started roaming around in these woodlots. And one of the things I used to wonder about in these woodlots is where do the leaves go? And so here I am raking the damn leaves out. <laughs> in the woods, like the woods, there's leaves in the woods, but it's not like the woods are filling up with leaves every year. Where do they go? And so I became very interested in decomposition and the nutrient recycling associated with leaves. And I always laugh about that because that's where that's kind of kind of where I am in studying those those ecosystem processes. Um, and so uh, so I, I got a PhD at the University of Georgia. I then was a postdoctoral researcher for three years at Michigan State University. Um, I was an assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island for four and a half years, from eighty-seven to ninety-one. And and then I, then then in ninety-two, I went to work at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, which is a wonderful private nonprofit research institute um, in in Dutchess County, New York, about eighty miles north of New York City. And so there, I was I had just a, a complete research. I was just I, I was just a researcher. And I'm still, that's actually where I'm sitting right now. I still have an office and laboratory to carry. Institute. Oh, awesome. But seven years ago, I took a, this position at the City University of New York. And, um, and then New York City is an exciting place to yeah. do urban urban ecology. And so there were some new opportunities there. And uh, so now I go back and forth. You know, I, I have a, I have a, I have an office in, in, at the, in Millbrook. I have a, an office in Manhattan. I have an office in Brooklyn. Um, and no one expects me to be anywhere. <laughs> it's like yeah, the best of both worlds. Yeah, I was just but thinking. I've been, I've been, I've been, uh, I'm a very happy academic because I've gotten to do interesting things and to work mm -hmm. with interesting people and great students. Yeah. So. I, I was just thinking as you were talking about growing up in New Jersey and, and thinking about where the leaves grow, I'm like, how wonderful would it be to like a New Jersey forest walk with both Dr. Peter Grothman and Dr. Emil DeVito? I don't know if you've ever met Emil DeVito with the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. No. The two of you would get along famously, I think. <laughs> that would be to die for. You know, so one of the things that's interesting was as a as a as a kid growing up in New Jersey, one of my great um objectives was to was to go to college outside of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to go to Rutgers. Yeah. You know, and then when I moved back here after graduate school and and, and plus, I'm an adjunct professor in the, in the EENR department, Ecology, Evolution, and Natural Resources at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And it's a powerhouse. Like, so yeah. when I came yeah. back 
you know, and my parents were still living in New Jersey. It's like, well, they had great faculty. They were, had great students and they were doing really high power research. And so, so my, um, my respect for Rutgers in New Jersey <laughs> has gone up a lot. And it's just a great state for it, right? Because, because you have, you have, you know, you have real cities, you have real suburban mm-hmm. um, areas, and but you have real interests in conservation and real challenges in conservation. And so, um, you know, forestry in New Jersey is really is really quite interesting. The pine barrens are quite interesting. The coastal areas are quite interesting. It's, New Jersey is actually a really good spot for environmental science. And we haven't even talked about deer impact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. But then when we get to what's my favorite plant, right? So I started thinking about that. Or she asked me what was my favorite plant, uh, which, yes. which is yes. just an unbelievable question. And a lot of it has to do with with uh, with what – like Rudbeckia is one of my favorite plants. Right? Okay. Black-eyed Susan. Okay. Why do I love black-eyed Susan? It's a nice plant. The deer don't eat it. Although this summer it was, I think maybe because it was dry. Well, but the deer- you, I I don't know. It's this summer was very tough because so mm-hmm. many things didn't make it in the landscape or didn't thrive, and things that typically would push new growth didn't push new growth or enough new growth. So when they're when they're grazing on that tender. Like I saw mm-hmm. them graze things in my yard that they had never touched before, and I I I, ha- I would have to think that that's either numbers or environmental impact with yeah. drought. Because yeah. I I had the same thing, and, and I was yelling at them that you don't like these plants, <laughs> and, and and this discovery that the deer are not reading the the scientific literature, they're not reading the circulars that the <laughs> extension service puts on. It's a huge yeah, yeah. It's and, always uh, I always laugh because. Um, uh, I like the hunt. I've talked about that on the podcast a lot, but I listen to a lot of hunting podcasts and they're always talking about what, how to attract deer, plants to attract deer. And so many people are like, oh yeah, deer love uh, uh, Japanese honeysuckle. And I'm like, they don't really like it. That's just what's left. That's what's left for them to eat. And uh, someone, mean, isn't, isn't it a big reason, like the reason why we have so much barberry and Japanese honeysuckle is because the deer don't like it. Exactly. And uh, just the yeah. other day, I'm uh, another podcast, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you got to go if you want to find deer. You need to go anywhere. There's Japanese barberry because they love to eat it." I'm like, no, "They're just eating it because that's what's left. They ate everything else they want." <laughs> yeah, everything is everything. So is, everything is it's gone. a it's a weird juxtaposition sometimes because I know the plant side of stuff, and then you listen to people who don't necessarily know the plant side of stuff, but know how to hunt way better than I do. And um, getting them on the same page is is actually a movement that's been happening. I don't know if if you're familiar with it, but you have some people, especially in the Southeast and Midwest where they really like to hunt and for deer and turkeys and ducks and all this stuff. And then they want to create native habitats that are going to attract that. Cause they know hey, that's what I mean, attract so them for thousands is, of years. So, it's very much yeah. consistent with this idea that we need to listen to people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and, and when we get to talk about winter climate change in our, in our next work, yeah. which is work I've done in New Hampshire, we spent a lot of time, listening to stakeholders, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we, we assemble groups of people. We've talked with sugar maple producers, farmers, snowmobilers, ski operators, road supervisors, farmers. And we say, well, what's your perception of how has the climate changed and, and what are the impacts of it and how are you adapting to that? And you learn a lot. You learn mm-hmm. a lot from hunters who spend a lot of time rolling around yeah. in the woods. And, it, and, and um, so we learn a lot. And it's also, if we're hoping to engage with people to, to get them to do something differently, we we need to listen to them and talk to them, and so you and so it's 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 good at a lot of levels. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. definitely. Next episode, I want to talk about importance of leaf cover, importance of snow cover, mm-hmm. how what has happened has affected the climate, and where that's heading yeah. in the future. Um, 
But is I'm sorry. I was no. gonna say, would you mind uh, humoring us for just a, a minute? And um, you said you wanted to find out where the leaves go. And when you said that, I'm like, I think I know what happens to the leaves. But can you tell us what happens to the leaves when just like a brief one? Because I want to go more yeah. in depth decompose. on the last. Yeah. They they, de- they decompose yeah. right. So so the leaves are mostly carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so if you have a hundred you know grams of leaf, ninety nine point of it goes back to carbon dioxide and water back into the atmosphere. There's a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus in that gets recycled into the soil and a little bit of carbon that's left over that builds up the humus in the soil. But mostly it just decomposes, you know, Mm -hmm. it takes, takes a while, but um, it, uh, they, they, they decompose. And is it because of, of, well, I know the earthworms can cause problems with, with, uh, with processing leaves too quickly sometimes, but is it, different microbes or, or larval stages of stuff that are doing it or probably a mix yeah, of everything. So, yeah. yeah. So no, it's, it's, it is this mixture of everything. And, and, and you can, you can really observe this, right? So a leaf falls and a bunch of fungi have colonized the leaf actually even mm-hmm. before it falls. And so you get a certain, there's a whole uh, relatively predictable succession of organisms that kind of work on the leaf. So you have some fungi, you have some bacteria and you have a bunch of invertebrates that chew on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then the fungal and bacterial populations change, and then other invertebrates take up take over. And um, it's been st- it's been studied a lot because yeah. it turns out, as this is true in science, I wasn't the only one wondering where the leaves go. And, and, <laughs> and lots of people have been been, been studying it and, and looking at. It. Yeah. So we're gonna we're let's use that as where we pick up mm-hmm. on the next one. Um, is rutabaga gonna be your favorite native plant or? We, I got to ask you, like, is or is or is that just one you were throwing out as an extra? No, so 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 at, at first, I, at the first thing that came to my mind was was sugar me, because like, I, I, I really like sugar me. I do too. I then went quickly to to Rubecchia and Echinacea, which grow really nicely in my yard. No maintenance. The deer don't eat them. I'm very happy with that. And um, and then the other the other thing that got me was is catalpa. I have a giant catalpa tree in my yard, which is like. It's like the centerpiece of like my family. You know, like we sit under this tree. Like the tree, the tree is a member of the family. And and it and and then the other thing, and I was and I was talking to I was I was talking with my cousin on the phone this morning, who who who's a, a landscape landscaper, yeah. and and I said, well, how do I answer this question? She said, I'm a rock you know, and I'm is really one of my favorites. You know, and people nice. are probably in their yards now, the shad bush. And and the thing that got me about that question was. Um, is it, it, it kind of is illustrative of everything we're talking about. Like people's yards are really important to them and plants are really important to them. And, and, and just your question is a great one. Like, okay, what's my native plant and why? And then you get it to the whole complexity yeah. of all these issues that we're talking about. So I think it's a really good question to both start with and end with. Yeah, you know, and it's for different reasons. And I love hearing the reasons. If I were to ask my wife what her favorite native plant is growing up in Poland, it's, it's going to be – something that has an emotional effect from her childhood you know and that's and that's why uh you know but like when you say rutabecki i think oh that's great you know if you're doing a seeding that comes up quick it's early color like you said typically the deer don't eat it it has a lot of great reasons but that may not be the reason that it's your favorite it's it's i like the emotional attachment to it because we're dealing with why people do what they do and why they like what they like Mm -hmm. and the emotion and, and how to work with that so i think it's a great full circle on that one. Um, so we always end with final thoughts and this is where we, we hand the floor over to you and Tom and I will do this also where, where we give you just a a minute or two to summarize, uh, mention something that we hadn't mentioned, promote something. Uh, we just kind of give it to you and the floor is yours. 
Yeah. No, and I'll just kind of follow up on this this question of, of why, what's my favorite, the reasons for what my favorite plants are. And it just illustrates that, that these these questions about what people do in their yard, they're just really important. They're really, they're important to our environmental health, they're important to our physical health, they're important to our mental health, and they're just really complex. And so um, and so it's, it's, it's just a pleasure to be able to have a conversation like this because it's it's important and interesting stuff. So I'm very glad to have the opportunity to talk oh, about this. Thank you. We we appreciate it, too. Do you yeah. want to go or you want yeah, me to go? Yeah, uh, mine is basically, uh, thank you, Skip Burns. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we didn't know who you were yet. <laughs> just being so close and um, especially since you're originally from New Jersey. Uh, no, it's definitely – I need to add you to our invite list for all these events that we have now. So <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um Mine is, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, this is something that we've been scratching the surface on for almost two years with the podcast. And I think this is the first time we've really started to unpack it. Like, I feel like I'm unpacking childhood, <laughs> childhood issues, you know, with, cause we've been talking about this and just going with our thoughts, but never really unpacking it from a scientific point of view or having the conversation about it like this. So I can't, Thank you enough for being a part of this and having this conversation and knowing that we get to continue this conversation because this – I mean we have a lot of great conversations, but this is one I didn't really want to end. So I'm glad that we can – we, we I, I didn't even check off a quarter of the list of the questions that, that we had for you. So um, I'm looking forward to going back to this, and you'll get another opportunity to say a different native plant as your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to keep thinking about it. Yeah, I look forward to our. I look forward to our next discussion. Yeah, awesome, awesome. I think that's we yeah. should. Wrap, I'm looking at the time, and I know you got to get out of here, Tom. So yeah. if you want to wrap, it I got to find where I have my uh, my ending notes. <laughs> we usually <laughs> say I have too many tabs open because everything. Every time you brought something up, I looked yeah. up something. New. Um, so. That's going to wrap us up today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Peter Groffman. For more information, um, Dr. Groffman, do you have a website you'd like people to visit? I do. You can, you can if you if you search under my name and uh, CUNY, C-U-N-Y, you'll find me. If you search under my name in the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies or just Cary Institute, you'll find me. And uh, I have websites at both those places. These are both wonderful institutions. And um a lot, a lot to see there. Yeah, and we'll actually add both of those to the yes. show notes. I have them pulled up here, okay. so I'll awesome. add them to our, our notes as well. Awesome. And, um, yeah, so thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're going to say thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you uh, stream or buy their music wherever you consume your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And you can also follow us at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We have the question and comment line. Don't forget, it's area code 215-346-6189. I will repeat, 215-346-6189. Uh, if you ask a question or leave a comment, we'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz. Or knowing that there's going to be a part two, this is an opportunity for you to call in with questions for, for part two. If you have questions for uh, Dr. Groffman, we'd be happy to play them on a future episode. Um, and thank you again to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group uh, and all the members. You're the reason that this episode happened today, so we can't thank you enough for that. Yeah, so uh, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. Do us a big, big favor and uh, and do your friends a big, big favor and um, 
If you leave us a, a five-star review, that goes a long way. If you do a little write-up, I give you a shout-out on the buzz. And uh, definitely subscribe, and I hope you all grabbed your your in-laws' phones and subscribed them over the Thanksgiving break as well. Uh, we have not just uh, merch, but we have some new merch. I've yes. been promising it for yes. a while. It finally I actually happened. got some stuff up. It was a lot. I, I consider myself to be fairly tech-savvy, but it didn't was not tech-savvy on this website. <laughs> but I got some new stuff up so that uh, – Black Friday, Cyber Monday week sale that we had. I'm actually going to extend that another week so people oh, have awesome. a chance to to look at the new stuff that's up There's and blankets, buy that as well. So, blankets, aprons, so, blankets, so, so aprons, many things. Uh, tank tops, different T-shirts, sweatshirts, and, all kinds of stuff on there. Let's not forget we keep none of that money. Yeah. All of that money, uh, any profit goes right back to nonprofits or other organizations doing great work in the industry. So Tom and I don't see a penny of that. We take that. And we help fantastic organizations that are doing great work. Well, yeah, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Dr. Groffman, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We will see you shortly. Uh, Next week, we have a Buzz episode coming up, so make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.